Chapter 34 Frames and Reality Italy and France competed in the 2006 final of the World Cup. The next two sentences both describe the outcome. Italy won. France lost. Do those statements have the same meaning? The answer depends entirely on what you mean by meaning. For the purpose of logical reasoning, the two descriptions of the outcome of the match are interchangeable because they designate the same state of the world. As philosophers say, their truth conditions are identical. If one of these sentences is true, then the other is true as well. This is how econs understand things. Their beliefs and preferences are reality-bound. In particular, the objects of their choices are states of the world, which are not affected by the words chosen to describe them. There is another sense of meaning in which Italy won and France lost do not have the same meaning at all. In this sense, the meaning of a sentence is what happens in your associative machinery while you understand it. The two sentences evoke markedly different associations. Italy won evokes thoughts of the Italian team and what it did to win. France lost evokes thoughts of the French team and what it did that caused it to lose, including the memorable headbutt by an Italian player by the French star Zidane. In terms of the associations they bring to mind, how System 1 reacts to them, the two sentences really mean different things. The fact that logically equivalent statements evoke different reactions makes it impossible for humans to be as reliably rational as econs. Emotional Framing Amos and I apply the label of framing effects to the unjustified influences of formulation on beliefs and preferences. This is one of the examples we used. Would you accept a gamble that offers a 10% chance to win $95 and a 90% chance to lose $5? Would you pay $5 to participate in a lottery that offers a 10% chance to win $100 and a 90% chance to win nothing? First, take a moment to convince yourself that the two problems are identical. In both of them, you must decide whether to accept an uncertain prospect that will leave you either richer by $95 or poorer by $5. Someone whose preferences are reality-bound would give the same answer to both questions, but such individuals are rare. In fact, one version attracts many more positive answers. The second. A bad outcome is much more acceptable if it is framed as the cost of a lottery ticket that did not win than if it is simply described as a losing gamble. We should not be surprised. Losses evokes stronger negative feelings than costs. Choices are not reality-bound because System 1 is not reality-bound. The problem we constructed was influenced by what we had learned from Richard Thaler, who told us that when he was a graduate student, he had pinned on his board a card that said, Costs are not losses. In his early essay on consumer behavior, Thaler described the debate about whether gas stations would be allowed to charge different prices for purchases paid with cash or on credit. 
The credit card lobby pushed hard to make differential pricing illegal, but it had a fallback position. The difference, if allowed, would be labeled a cash discount, not a credit surcharge. Their psychology was sound. People will more readily forego a discount than pay a surcharge. The two may be economically equivalent, but they are not emotionally equivalent. In an elegant experiment, a team of neuroscientists at the University of College London combined a study of framing effects with recordings of activity in different areas of the brain. In order to provide reliable measures of the brain response, the experiment consisted of many trials. Figure 14 illustrates the two stages of one of these trials. First, the subject is asked to imagine that she received an amount of money, in this example, 50 pounds. The subject is then asked to choose between a sure outcome and a gamble on a wheel of chance. If the wheel stops on white, she receives the entire amount. If it stops on black, she gets nothing. The sure outcome is simply the expected value of the gamble, in this case a gain of 20 pounds. As shown, the same sure outcome can be framed in two different ways, as keep 20 pounds or as lose 30 pounds. The objective outcomes are precisely identical in the two frames, and a reality-bound econ would respond to both in the same way, selecting either the sure thing or the gamble regardless of the frame. But we already know that the human mind is not bound to reality. Tendencies to approach or avoid are evoked by the words, and we expect System 1 to be biased in favor of the sure option when it is designated as keep and against that same option when it is designated as lose. The experiment consisted of many trials, and each participant encountered several choice problems in both the keep and the lose frames. As expected, every one of the 20 subjects showed a framing effect. They were more likely to choose the sure thing in the keep frame and more likely to accept the gamble in the lose frame but the subjects were not all alike. Some were highly susceptible to the framing of the problem. Others mostly made the same choice regardless of the frame, as a reality-bound individual should do. The authors ranked the 20 subjects accordingly and gave the ranking a striking label, the Rationality Index. The activity of the brain was recorded as the subjects made each decision. Later, the trials were separated into two categories. One, trials on which the subject's choice conformed to the frame. Preferred the sure thing in the keep version, preferred the gamble in the loss version. Two, trials in which the choice did not conform to the frame. The remarkable results illustrate the potential of the new discipline of neuroeconomics, the study of what a person's brain does while he makes decisions. Neuroscientists have run thousands of such experiments, and they have learned to expect particular regions of the brain to light up, indicating increased flow of oxygen, which suggests heightened neural activity, depending on the nature of the task. Different regions are active when the individual attends to a visual object, imagines kicking a ball, 
recognizes a face, or thinks of a house. Other regions light up when the individual is emotionally aroused, is in conflict, or concentrates on solving a problem. Although neuroscientists carefully avoid the language of this part of the brain does such and such, they have learned a great deal about the personalities of different brain regions and the contribution of analyses of brain activity to psychological interpretation has greatly improved. The framing study yielded three main findings. A region that is commonly associated with emotional arousal, the amygdala, was most likely to be active when subjects' choices conformed to the frame. This is just as we would expect if the emotionally loaded words keep and lose produce an immediate tendency to approach the sure thing when it is framed as a gain, or avoid it when it is framed as a loss. The amygdala is accessed very rapidly by emotional stimuli, and it is a likely suspect for involvement in System 1. A brain region known to be associated with conflict and self-control, the anterior cingulate, was more active when subjects did not do what comes naturally, when they chose the sure thing in spite of its being labeled lose. Resisting the inclination of System 1 apparently involves conflict. The most rational subjects, those who were the least susceptible to framing effects, showed enhanced activity in a frontal area of the brain that is implicated in combining emotion and reasoning to guide decisions. Remarkably, the rational individuals were not those who showed the strongest neural evidence of conflict. It appears that these elite participants were, often, not always, reality-bound with little conflict. By joining observations of actual choices with a mapping of neural activity, this study provides a good illustration of how the emotion evoked by a word can leak into the final choice. An experiment that Amos carried out with colleagues at Harvard Medical School is the classic example of emotional framing. Physician participants were given statistics about the outcomes of two treatments for lung cancer, surgery, and radiation. The five-year survival rates clearly favor surgery, but in the short term, surgery is riskier than radiation. Half the participants read statistics about the survival rates. The others received the same information in terms of mortality rates. The two descriptions of the short-term outcomes of surgery were the one-month survival rate is 90%. There is a 10% mortality in the first month. You already know the results. Surgery was much more popular in the former frame. 84% of physicians chose it than in the latter, where 50% favored radiation. The logical equivalence of the two descriptions is transparent, and a reality-bound decision-maker would make the same choice regardless of which versions she saw. But System 1, as we have gotten to know it, is rarely indifferent to emotional words. Mortality is bad. Survival is good. And 90% survival sounds encouraging, whereas 10% mortality is frightening. An important finding of the study 
is that physicians were just as susceptible to the framing effect as medically unsophisticated people, hospital patients, and graduate students in a business school. Medical training is, evidently, no defense against the power of framing. The keep-lose study and the survival mortality experiment differed in one important respect. The participants in the brain imaging study had many trials in which they encountered the different frames. They had an opportunity to recognize the distracting effects of the frames and to simplify their task by adopting a common frame, perhaps by translating the lose amount into its keep equivalent. It would take an intelligent person and an alert system, too, to learn to do this. And the few participants who managed the feat were probably among the rational agents that the experimenters identified. In contrast, the physicians who read the statistics about the two therapies in the survival frame had no reason to suspect that they would have made a different choice if they had heard the same statistics framed in terms of mortality. Reframing is effortful, and System 2 is normally lazy. Unless there is an obvious reason to do otherwise, most of us passively accept decision problems as they are framed, and therefore rarely have an opportunity to discover the extent to which our preferences are frame-bound rather than reality-bound. Empty Intuitions Amos and I introduced our discussion of framing by an example that has become known as the Asian disease problem. Imagine that the United States is preparing for the outbreak of an unusual Asian disease which is expected to kill 600 people. Two alternative programs to combat the disease have been proposed. Assume that the exact scientific estimates of the consequences of the programs are as follows. If Program A is adopted, 200 people will be saved. If Program B is adopted, there is a one-third probability that 600 people will be saved and a two-thirds probability that no people will be saved. A substantial majority of respondents chose Program A. They prefer the certain option over the gamble. The outcomes of the programs are framed differently in a second version. If Program A-1 is adopted, 400 people will die. If Program B-1 is adopted, there is a one-third probability that nobody will die and a two-thirds probability that 600 people will die. Look closely and compare the two versions. The consequences of Programs A and A-1 are identical. So are the consequences of Programs B and B-1. In the second frame, however, a large majority of people choose the gamble. The different choices in the two frames fit prospect theory, in which choices between gambles and sure things are resolved differently, depending on whether the outcomes are good or bad. Decision-makers tend to prefer the sure thing over the gamble. They are risk-averse when the outcomes are good. They tend to reject the sure thing and accept the gamble, they are risk-seeking when both outcomes are negative. These conclusions were well-established for choices about gambles and sure things in the domain of money. The disease problem 
shows that the same rule applies when the outcomes are measured in lives saved or lost. In this context as well, the framing experiment reveals that risk-averse and risk-seeking preferences are not reality-bound. Preferences between the same objective outcomes reverse with different formulations. An experience that Amos shared with me adds a grim note to the story. Amos was invited to give a speech to a group of public health professionals, the people who make decisions about vaccines and other programs. He took the opportunity to present them with the Asian disease problem. Half saw the lives saved version, the others answered the lives lost question. Like other people, these professionals were susceptible to the framing effects. It is somewhat worrying that the officials who make decisions that affect everyone's health can be swayed by such a superficial manipulation. But we must get used to the idea that even important decisions are influenced, if not governed, by System 1. Even more troubling is what happens when people are confronted with their inconsistency. You chose to save 200 lives for sure in one formulation, and you chose to gamble rather than accept 400 deaths in the other. Now that you know these choices were inconsistent, how do you decide? The answer is usually embarrassed silence. The intuitions that determined the original choice came from System 1 and had no more moral basis than did the preference for keeping 20 pounds or the aversion to losing 30 pounds. Saving lives with certainty is good. Deaths are bad. Most people find that their system, too, has no moral intuitions of its own to answer the question. I am grateful to the great economist Thomas Schelling for my favorite example of a framing effect, which he described in his book, Choice and Consequence. Schelling's book was written before our work on framing was published, and framing was not his main concern. He reported on his experience teaching a class at the Kennedy School at Harvard, in which the topic was child exemptions in the tax code. Schelling told his students that a standard exemption is allowed for each child, and that the amount of the exemption is independent of the taxpayer's income. He asked their opinion of the following proposition. Should the child exemption be larger for the rich than for the poor? Your own intuitions are very likely the same as those of Schelling's students. They found the idea of favoring the rich by a larger exemption completely unacceptable. Schelling then pointed out that the tax law is arbitrary. It assumes the childless family as the default case and reduces the tax by the amount of the exemption for each child. The tax law could, of course, be rewritten with another default case, a family with two children. In this formulation, families with fewer than the default number of children would pay a surcharge. Schelling now asked his students to report their view of another proposition. Should the childless poor pay as large a surcharge as the childless rich? Here again you probably agree with the students' reaction to this idea, which they rejected with as much vehemence as the first. But Schelling showed his class that they could not logically reject both proposals. Set the two formulations next to each other. 
The difference between the tax due by a childless family and by a family with two children is described as a reduction of tax in the first version and as an increase in the second. If in the first version you want the poor to receive the same or greater benefit as the rich for having children, then you must want the poor to pay at least the same penalty as the rich for being childless. We can recognize System 1 at work. It delivers an immediate response to any question about rich and poor. When in doubt, favor the poor. The surprising aspect of Schelling's problem is that this apparently simple moral rule does not work reliably. It generates contradictory answers to the same problem, depending on how the problem is framed. And of course you already know the question that comes next. Now that you have seen that your reactions to the problem are influenced by the frame, what is your answer to the question, how should the tax code treat the children of the rich and the poor? Here again, you will probably find yourself dumbfounded. You have moral intuitions about differences between the rich and the poor, but these intuitions depend on an arbitrary reference point, and they are not about the real problem. This problem, the question about actual states of the world, is how much tax individual families should pay, how to fill the cells in the matrix of the tax code. You have no compelling moral intuitions to guide you in solving that problem. Your moral feelings are attached to frames, to descriptions of reality rather than to reality itself. The message about the nature of framing is stark. Framing should not be viewed as an intervention that masks or distorts an underlying preference, at least in this instance, and also in the problems of the Asian disease and of surgery versus radiation for lung cancer, there is no underlying preference that is masked or distorted by the frame. Our preferences are about framed problems, and our moral intuitions are about descriptions, not about substance. Good Frames Not all frames are equal and some frames are clearly better than alternative ways to describe or to think about the same thing. Consider the following pair of problems. A woman has bought two $80 tickets to the theater. When she arrives at the theater, she opens her wallet and discovers that the tickets are missing. Will she buy two more tickets to see the play? A woman goes to the theater intending to buy two tickets that cost $80 each. She arrives at the theater, opens her wallet, and discovers to her dismay that the $160 with which she was going to make the purchase is missing. She could use her credit card. Will she buy the tickets? Respondents who see only one version of this problem reach different conclusions depending on the frame. Most believe that the woman in the first story will go home without seeing the show if she has lost tickets, and most believe that she will charge tickets for the show if she has lost money. The explanation should already be familiar. This problem involves mental accounting and the sunk cost fallacy. The different frames evoke different mental accounts, and the significance of the loss depends on the account to which it is posted. When tickets to a particular show are lost, 
it is natural to post them to the account associated with that play. The cost appears to have doubled and may now be more than the experience is worth. In contrast, a loss of cash is charged to a general revenue account. The theater patron is slightly poorer than she had thought she was, and the question she is likely to ask herself is whether the small reduction in her disposable wealth will change her decision about paying for tickets. Most respondents thought it would not. The version in which cash was lost leads to more reasonable decisions. It is a better frame because the loss, even if tickets were lost, is sunk, and sunk costs should be ignored. History is irrelevant, and the only issue that matters is the set of options the theater patron has now and their likely consequences. Whatever she lost, the relevant fact is that she is less wealthy than she was before she opened her wallet. If the person who lost tickets were to ask for my advice, this is what I would say. Would you have bought tickets if you had lost the equivalent amount of cash? If yes, go ahead and buy new ones. Broader frames and inclusive accounts generally lead to more rational decisions. In the next example, two alternative frames evoke different mathematical intuitions, and one is much superior to the other. In an article titled The MPG Illusion, which appeared in Science Magazine in 2008, the psychologists Richard Larrick and Jack Saul identified a case in which passive acceptance of a misleading frame has substantial costs and serious policy consequences. Most car buyers list gas mileage as one of the factors that determine their choice. They know that high-mileage cars have lower operating costs. But the frame that has traditionally been used in the United States, miles per gallon, provides very poor guidance to the decisions of both individuals and policymakers. Consider two car owners who seek to reduce their costs. Adam switches from a gas guzzler of 12 mpg to a slightly less voracious guzzler that runs at 14 mpg. The environmentally virtuous Beth switches from a 30 mpg car to one that runs at 40 mpg. Suppose both drivers travel equal distances over a year. Who will save more gas by switching? You almost certainly share the widespread intuition that Beth's action is more significant than Adam's. She reduced MPG by 10 miles rather than 2, and by a third from 30 to 40 rather than a sixth from 12 to 14. Now engage your system too and work it out. If the two car owners both drive 10,000 miles, Adam will reduce his consumption from a scandalous 833 gallons to a still shocking 714 gallons for a saving of 119 gallons. Beth's use of fuel will drop from 333 gallons to 250, saving only 83 gallons. The MPG frame is wrong and it should be replaced by the gallons-per-mile frame, or liters per 100 kilometers, which is used in most other countries. As Larrick and Saul point out, the misleading intuitions fostered by the MPG frame are likely to mislead policymakers as well as car buyers. 
Under President Obama, Cass Sunstein served as Administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. With Richard Thaler, Sunstein co-authored Nudge, which is the basic manual for applying behavioral economics to policy. It was no accident that the fuel economy and environment sticker that will be displayed on every new car starting in 2013 will, for the first time in the United States, include the gallons-per-mile information. Unfortunately, the correct formulation will be in small print, along with the more familiar MPG information in large print. But the move is in the right direction. The five-year interval between the publication of the MPG illusion and the implementation of a partial correction is probably a speed record for a significant application of psychological science to public policy. A directive about organ donation in case of accidental death is noted on an individual's driver's license in many countries. The formulation of that directive is another case in which one frame is clearly superior to the other. Few people would argue that the decision of whether or not to donate one's organs is unimportant, but there is strong evidence that most people make their choice thoughtlessly. The evidence comes from a comparison of the rate of organ donation in European countries, which reveals startling differences between neighboring and culturally similar countries. An article published in 2003 noted that the rate of organ donation was close to 100% in Austria, but only 12% in Germany, 86% in Sweden, but only 4% in Denmark. These enormous differences are a framing effect, which is caused by the format of the critical question. The high-donation countries have an opt-out form where individuals who wish not to donate must check an appropriate box. Unless they take this simple action, they are considered willing donors. The low-contribution countries have an opt-in form. You must check a box to become a donor. That is all. The best single predictor of whether or not people will donate their organs is the designation of the default option that will be adopted without having to check a box. Unlike other framing effects that have been traced to features of System 1, the organ donation effect is best explained by the laziness of System 2. People will check the box if they have already decided what they wish to do. If they are unprepared for the question, they have to make the effort of thinking whether they want to check the box. I imagine an organ donation form in which people are required to solve a mathematical problem in the box that corresponds to their decision. One of the boxes contains the problem 2 plus 2 equals... The problem in the other box is 13 times 37 equals... The rate of donations would surely be swayed. When the role of formulation is acknowledged, a policy question arises. Which formulation should be adopted? In this case, the answer is straightforward. If you believe that a large supply of donated organs is good for society, you will not be neutral between a formulation that yields almost 100% donations and another formulation that elicits donations from 4% of drivers. As we have seen again and again, 
An important choice is controlled by an utterly inconsequential feature of the situation. This is embarrassing. It is not how we would wish to make important decisions. Furthermore, it is not how we experience the workings of our mind. But the evidence for these cognitive illusions is undeniable. Count that as a point against the rational agent theory. A theory that is worthy of the name asserts that certain events are impossible. They will not happen if the theory is true. When an impossible event is observed, the theory is falsified. Theories can survive for a long time after conclusive evidence falsifies them, and the rational agent model certainly survived the evidence we have seen and much other evidence as well. The case of organ donation shows that the debate about human rationality can have a large effect in the real world. A significant difference between believers in the rational agent model and the skeptics who question it is that the believers simply take it for granted that the formulation of a choice cannot determine preferences on significant problems. They will not even be interested in investigating the problem. And so we are often left with inferior outcomes. Skeptics about rationality are not surprised. They are trained to be sensitive to the power of inconsequential factors as determinants of preference. My hope is that readers of this book have acquired this sensitivity. Speaking of frames and reality. They will feel better about what happened if they manage to frame the outcome in terms of how much money they kept rather than how much they lost. Let's reframe the problem by changing the reference point. Imagine we did not own it. How much would we think it is worth? Charge the loss to your mental account of general revenue. You will feel better. They ask you to check the box to opt out of their mailing list. Their list would shrink if they asked you to check a box to opt in. Part 5 Two Selves Chapter 35 Two Selves The term utility has had two distinct meanings in its long history. Jeremy Bentham opened his Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation, with the famous sentence, Nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do, as well as to determine what we shall do. In an awkward footnote, Bentham apologized for applying the word utility to these experiences, saying that he had been unable to find a better word. To distinguish Bentham's interpretation of the term, I will call it experienced utility. For the last 100 years, economists have used the same word to mean something else. As economists and decision theorists apply the term, it means wantability, and I have called it decision utility. Expected utility theory, for example, is entirely about the rules of rationality that should govern decision utilities. It has nothing at all to say about hedonic experiences. Of course, the two concepts of utility 
will coincide if people want what they will enjoy and enjoy what they choose for themselves, and this assumption of coincidence is implicit in the general idea that economic agents are rational. Rational agents are expected to know their tastes, both present and future, and they are supposed to make good decisions that will maximize these interests. Experienced Utility My fascination with the possible discrepancies between experienced utility and decision utility goes back a long way. While Amos and I were still working on prospect theory, I formulated a puzzle, which went like this. Imagine an individual who receives one painful injection every day. There is no adaptation. The pain is the same day to day. Will people attach the same value to reducing the number of planned injections from 20 to 18 as from 6 to 4? Is there any justification for a distinction? I did not collect data, because the outcome was evident. You can verify for yourself that you would pay more to reduce the number of injections by a third from 6 to 4 than by one-tenth from 20 to 18. The decision utility of avoiding two injections is higher in the first case than in the second, and everyone will pay more for the first reduction than for the second. But this difference is absurd. If the pain does not change from day to day, what could justify assigning different utilities to a reduction of the total amount of pain by two injections, depending on the number of previous injections? In the terms we would use today, the puzzle introduced the idea that experienced utility could be measured by the number of injections. It also suggested that, at least in some cases, experienced utility is the criterion by which a decision should be assessed. A decision-maker who pays different amounts to achieve the same gain of experienced utility, or be spared the same loss, is making a mistake. You may find this observation obvious, but in decision theory, the only basis for judging that a decision is wrong is inconsistency with other preferences. Amos and I discussed the problem, but we did not pursue it. Many years later, I returned to it. Experience and Memory How can experienced utility be measured? How should we answer questions such as, How much pain did Helen suffer during the medical procedure? Or, How much enjoyment did she get from her 20 minutes on the beach? The British economist Francis Edgeworth speculated about this topic in the 19th century and proposed the idea of a hedonometer, an imaginary instrument analogous to the devices used in weather recording stations, which would measure the level of pleasure or pain that an individual experiences at any moment. Experienced utility would vary, much as daily temperature or barometric pressure do, and the results would be plotted as a function of time. The answer to the question of how much pain or pleasure Helen experienced during her medical procedure or vacation would be the area under the curve, Time plays a critical role in Edgeworth's conception. If Helen stays on the beach for 40 minutes instead of 20, 
and her enjoyment remains as intense, then the total experienced utility of that episode doubles, just as doubling the number of injections makes a course of injections twice as bad. This was Edgeworth's theory, and we now have a precise understanding of the conditions under which his theory holds. The graphs in Figure 15 show profiles of the experiences of two patients undergoing a painful colonoscopy, drawn from a study that Don Redelmeyer and I designed together. Redelmeyer, a physician and researcher at the University of Toronto, carried it out in the early 1990s. This procedure is now routinely administered with an anesthetic as well as an amnesic drug, but these drugs were not as widespread when our data were collected. The patients were prompted every 60 seconds to indicate the level of pain they experienced at the moment. The data shown are on a scale where zero is no pain at all and 10 is intolerable pain. As you can see, the experience of each patient varied considerably during the procedure, which lasted 8 minutes for patient A and 24 minutes for patient B. The last reading of zero pain was recorded after the end of the procedure. A total of 154 patients participated in the experiment. The shortest procedure lasted four minutes, the longest, 69 minutes. Next, consider an easy question. Assuming that the two patients used the scale of pain similarly, which patient suffered more? No contest. There is general agreement that patient B had the worst time. Patient B spent at least as much time as patient A at any level of pain, and the area under the curve is clearly larger for B than for A. The key factor, of course, is that B's procedure lasted much longer. I will call the measures based on reports of momentary pain hedonometer totals. When the procedure was over, all participants were asked to rate the total amount of pain they had experienced during the procedure. The wording was intended to encourage them to think of the integral of the pain they had reported, reproducing the hedonometer totals. Surprisingly, the patients did nothing of the kind. The statistical analysis revealed two findings, which illustrate a pattern we have observed in other experiments. Peak end rule. The global respective rating was well predicted by the average of the level of pain reported at the worst moment of the experience and at its end. Duration neglect. The duration of the procedure had no effect whatsoever on the ratings of total pain. You can now apply these rules to the profiles of patients A and B. The worst rating, 8 on the 10-point scale, was the same for both patients, but the last rating before the end of the procedure was 7 for patient A and only 1 for patient B. The peak end average was therefore 7.5 for patient A and only 4.5 for patient B. As expected, patient A retained a much worse memory of the episode than patient B. It was the bad luck of patient A that the procedure ended at a bad moment, leaving him with an unpleasant memory. We now have an embarrassment of riches. 
two measures of experienced utility, the hedonometer total and the retrospective assessment, that are systematically different. The hedonometer totals are computed by an observer from an individual's report of the experience of moments. We call these judgments duration-weighted because the computation of the area under the curve assigns equal weights to all moments. Two minutes of pain at level 9 is twice as bad as one minute at the same level of pain. However, the findings of this experiment and others show that the retrospective assessments are insensitive to duration and weight to singular moments, the peak and the end, much more than others. So which should matter? What should the physician do? The choice has implications for medical practice. We noted that if the objective is to reduce patients' memory of pain, lowering the peak intensity of pain could be more important than minimizing the duration of the procedure. By the same reasoning, gradual relief may be preferable to abrupt relief if patients retain a better memory when the pain at the end of the procedure is relatively mild. If the objective is to reduce the amount of pain actually experienced, conducting the procedure swiftly may be appropriate even if doing so increases the peak pain intensity and leaves patients with an awful memory. Which of the two objectives did you find most compelling? I have not conducted a proper survey, but my impression is that a strong majority will come down in favor of reducing the memory of pain. I find it helpful to think of this dilemma as a conflict of interests between two selves, which do not correspond to the two familiar systems. The experiencing self is the one that answers the question, Does it hurt now? The remembering self is the one that answers the question, How was it on the whole? Memories are all we get to keep from our experience of living and the only perspective that we can adopt as we think about our lives is therefore that of the remembering self. A comment I heard from a member of the audience after a lecture illustrates the difficulty of distinguishing memories from experiences. He told of listening raptly to a long symphony on a disc that was scratched near the end, producing a shocking sound, and he reported that the bad ending ruined the whole experience. But the experience was not actually ruined, only the memory of it. The experiencing self had had an experience that was almost entirely good, and the bad end could not undo it because it had already happened. My questioner had assigned the entire episode a failing grade because it had ended very badly, but that grade effectively ignored 40 minutes of musical bliss. Does the actual experience count for nothing? Confusing experience with the memory of it is a compelling cognitive illusion, and it is the substitution that makes us believe a past experience can be ruined. The experiencing self does not have a voice. The remembering self is sometimes wrong, but it is the one that keeps score and governs what we learn from living, and it is the one that makes decisions. What we learn from the past is to maximize the qualities of our future memories, not necessarily of our future experience. This is the tyranny of the remembering self.
which self should count? To demonstrate the decision-making power of the remembering self, my colleagues and I designed an experiment using a mild form of torture that I will call the cold hand situation. Its ugly technical name is cold presser. Participants are asked to hold their hand up to the wrist in painfully cold water until they are invited to remove it and are offered a warm towel. The subjects in our experiment used their free hand to control arrows on a keyboard to provide a continuous record of the pain they were enduring, a direct communication from their experiencing self. We chose a temperature that caused moderate but tolerable pain. The volunteer participants were, of course, free to remove their hand at any time, but none chose to do so. Each participant endured two cold hand episodes. The short episode consisted of 60 seconds of immersion in water at 14 degrees Celsius, which is experienced as painfully cold but not intolerable. At the end of the 60 seconds, the experimenter instructed the participant to remove his hand from the water and offered a warm towel. The long episode lasted 90 seconds. Its first 60 seconds were identical to the short episode. The experimenter said nothing at all at the end of the 60 seconds. Instead, he opened a valve that allowed slightly warmer water to flow into the tub. During the additional 30 seconds, the temperature of the water rose by roughly one degree, just enough for most subjects to detect a slight decrease in the intensity of pain. Our participants were told that they would have three cold hand trials, but in fact they experienced only the short and the long episodes, each with a different hand. The trials were separated by seven minutes. Seven minutes after the second trial, the participants were given a choice about the third trial. They were told that one of their experiences would be repeated exactly, and were free to choose whether to repeat the experience they had had with their left hand or with their right hand. Of course, half the participants had the short trial with the left hand, half with the right. Half had the short trial first, half began with the long, etc. This was a carefully controlled experiment. The experiment was designed to create a conflict between the interests of the experiencing and the remembering selves, and also between experienced utility and decision utility. From the perspective of the experiencing self, the long trial was obviously worse. We expected the remembering self to have another opinion. The peak-end rule predicts a worse memory for the short than for the long trial, and duration neglect predicts that the difference between 90 seconds and 60 seconds of pain will be ignored. We therefore predicted that the participants would have a more favorable or less unfavorable memory of the long trial and choose to repeat it. They did. Fully 80% of the participants who reported that their pain diminished during the final phase of the longer episode opted to repeat it thereby declaring themselves willing to suffer 30 seconds of needless pain in the anticipated third trial. The subjects who preferred the long episode were not masochists and did not deliberately choose to expose themselves to the worse experience. They simply made a mistake. If we had asked them, 
Would you prefer a 90-second immersion or only the first part of it? They would certainly have selected the short option. We did not use these words, however, and the subjects did what came naturally. They chose to repeat the episode of which they had the less aversive memory. The subjects knew quite well which of the two exposures was longer. We asked them. But they did not use that knowledge. Their decision was governed by a simple rule of intuitive choice. Pick the option you like the most or dislike the least. Rules of memory determined how much they disliked the two options, which in turn determined their choice. The cold hand experiment, like my old injections puzzle, revealed a discrepancy between decision utility and experienced utility. The preferences we observed in this experiment are another example of the less-is-more effect that we have encountered on previous occasions. One was Christopher Shee's study, in which adding dishes to a set of 24 dishes lowered the total value because some of the added dishes were broken. Another was Linda, the activist woman who is judged more likely to be a feminist bank teller than a bank teller. The similarity is not accidental. The same operating feature of System 1 accounts for all three situations. System 1 represents sets by averages, norms, and prototypes, not by sums. Each cold hand episode is a set of moments, which the remembering self stores as prototypical moment. This leads to a conflict. For an objective observer, evaluating the episode from the reports of the experiencing self, what counts is the area under the curve that integrates pain over time. It has the nature of a sum. The memory that the remembering self keeps, in contrast, is a representative moment, strongly influenced by the peak and the end. Of course, evolution could have designed animals' memory to store integrals, as it surely does in some cases. It is important for a squirrel to know the total amount of food it has stored, and a representation of the average size of the nuts would not be a good substitute. However, the integral of pain or pleasure over time may be less biologically significant. We know, for example, that rats show duration neglect for both pleasure and pain. In one experiment, rats were consistently exposed to a sequence in which the onset of a light signals that an electric shock will soon be delivered. The rats quickly learned to fear the light, and the intensity of their fear could be measured by several physiological responses. The main finding was that the duration of the shock has little or no effect on fear. All that matters is the painful intensity of the stimulus. Other classic studies showed that electrical stimulation of specific areas in the rat brain and of corresponding areas in the human brain produce a sensation of intense pleasure, so intense in some cases that rats who can stimulate their brain by pressing a lever will die of starvation without taking a break to feed themselves. Pleasurable electrical stimulation can be delivered in bursts that vary in intensity and duration. Here again, only intensity matters. Up to a point, 
Increasing the duration of a burst of stimulation does not appear to increase the eagerness of the animal to obtain it. The rules that govern the remembering self of humans have a long evolutionary history. Biology versus Rationality The most useful idea in the injections puzzle that preoccupied me years ago was that the experienced utility of a series of equally painful injections can be measured by simply counting the injections. If all injections are equally aversive, then 20 of them are twice as bad as 10, and a reduction from 20 to 18 and a reduction from 6 to 4 are equally valuable. If the decision utility does not correspond to the experienced utility, then something is wrong with the decision. The same logic played out in the cold hand experiment. An episode of pain that lasts 90 seconds is worse than the first 60 seconds of that episode. If people willingly choose to endure the longer episode, something is wrong with their decision. In my early puzzle, the discrepancy between the decision and the experience originated from diminishing sensitivity. The difference between 18 and 20 is less impressive and appears to be worth less than the difference between 6 and 4 injections. In the cold hand experiment, the error reflects two principles of memory, duration neglect and the peak end rule. The mechanisms are different but the outcome is the same, a memory and a consequent decision that do not correspond to the experience. Decisions that do not produce the best possible experience and erroneous forecasts of future feelings, both are bad news for believers in the rationality of choice. The cold hand study showed that we cannot fully trust our preferences to reflect our interests, even if they are based on personal experience, and even if the memory of that experience was laid down within the last quarter of an hour. Tastes and decisions are shaped by memories, and the memories can be wrong. The evidence presents a profound challenge to the idea that humans have consistent preferences and know how to maximize them, a cornerstone of the rational agent model. An inconsistency is built into the design of our minds. We have strong preferences about the duration of our experiences of pain and pleasure. We want pain to be brief and pleasure to last. But our memory, a function of System 1, has evolved to represent the most intense moment of an episode of pain or pleasure, the peak, and the feelings when the episode was at its end. A memory that neglects duration will not serve our preference for long pleasure and short pains. Speaking of Two Selves You are thinking of your failed marriage entirely from the perspective of the remembering self. A divorce is like a symphony with a screeching sound at the end. The fact that it ended badly does not mean it was all bad. This is a bad case of duration neglect. You are giving the good and the bad part of your experience equal weight, although the good part lasted ten times as long as the other. 
Chapter 36 Life as a Story Early in the days of my work on the measurement of experience, I saw Verdi's opera La Traviata. Known for its gorgeous music, it is also a moving story of the love between a young aristocrat and Violetta, a woman of the demimonde. The young man's father approaches Violetta and convinces her to give up her lover to protect the honor of the family and the marriage prospects of the young man's sister. In an act of supreme self-sacrifice, Violetta pretends to reject the man she adores. She soon relapses into consumption, the nineteenth-century term for tuberculosis. In the final act, Violetta lies dying, surrounded by a few friends. Her beloved has been alerted and is rushing to Paris to see her. Hearing the news, she is transformed with hope and joy, but she is also deteriorating quickly. No matter how many times you have seen the opera, you are gripped by the tension and fear of the moment. Will the young lover arrive in time? There is a sense that it is immensely important for him to join his beloved before she dies. He does, of course. Some marvelous love duets are sung, and after ten minutes of glorious music, Violetta dies. On my way home from the opera, I wondered, why do we care so much about those last ten minutes? I quickly realized that I did not care at all about the length of Violetta's life. If I had been told that she died at age twenty-seven, not age twenty-eight, as I believed, the news that she had missed a year of happy life would not have moved me at all, but the possibility of missing the last ten minutes mattered a great deal. Furthermore, the emotion I felt about the lovers' reunion would not have changed if I had learned that they had actually had a week together, rather than ten minutes. If the lover had come too late, however, La Traviata would have been an altogether different story. A story is about significant events and memorable moments, not about time passing. Duration neglect is normal in a story, and the ending often defines its character. The same core features appear in the rules of narratives and in the memories of colonoscopies, vacations, and films. This is how the remembering self works. It composes stories and keeps them for future reference. It is not only at the opera that we think of life as a story and wish it to end well. When we hear about the death of a woman who had been estranged from her daughter for many years, we want to know whether they were reconciled as death approached. We do not care about the daughter's feelings. It is the narrative of the mother's life that we wish to improve. Caring for people often takes the form of concern for the quality of their stories, not for their feelings. Indeed, we can be deeply moved even by events that change the stories of people who are already dead. We feel pity for a man who died believing in his wife's love for him when we hear that she had a lover for many years and stayed with her husband only for his money. We pity the husband, although he had lived a happy life. We feel the humiliation of a scientist who made an important discovery that was proved false after she died, although she did not experience the humiliation. 
Most important, of course, we all care intensely for the narrative of our own life and very much want it to be a good story with a decent hero. The psychologist Ed Diener and his students wondered whether duration neglect and the peak-end rule would govern evaluations of entire lives. They used a short description of the life of a fictitious character called Jen, a never-married woman with no children who died instantly and painlessly in an automobile accident. In one version of Jen's story, she was extremely happy throughout her life, which lasted either 30 or 60 years, enjoying her work, taking vacations, spending time with her friends and on her hobbies. Another version added five extra years to Jen's life, who now died either when she was 35 or 65. The extra years were described as pleasant, but less so than before. After reading a schematic biography of Jen, each participant answered two questions. Taking her life as a whole, how desirable do you think Jen's life was? And how much total happiness or unhappiness would you say that Jen experienced in her life? The results provided clear evidence of both duration neglect and a peak-end effect. In a between-subjects experiment, Different participants saw different forms. Doubling the duration of Jen's life had no effect whatsoever on the desirability of her life or on judgments of the total happiness that Jen experienced. Clearly, her life was represented by a prototypical slice of time, not as a sequence of time slices. As a consequence, her total happiness was the happiness of a typical period in her lifetime not the sum or integral of happiness over the duration of her life. As expected from this idea, Diener and his students also found a less-is-more effect, a strong indication that an average prototype has been substituted for a sum. Adding five slightly happy years to a very happy life caused a substantial drop in evaluations of the total happiness of that life. At my urging, they also collected data on the effect of the extra five years in a within-subject experiment. Each participant made both judgments in immediate succession. In spite of my long experience with judgment errors, I did not believe that reasonable people could say that adding five slightly happy years to a life would make it substantially worse. I was wrong. The intuition that the disappointing extra five years made the whole life worse was overwhelming. The pattern of judgments seemed so absurd that Diener and his students initially thought that it represented the folly of the young people who participated in the experiments. However, the pattern did not change when the parents and older friends of students answered the same questions. In intuitive evaluation of entire lives, as well as brief episodes, peaks and ends matter, but duration does not. The pains of labor and the benefits of vacations always come up as objections to the idea of duration neglect. We all share the intuition that it is much worse for labor to last 24 than 6 hours, and that 6 days at a good resort 
is better than three. Duration appears to matter in these situations, but this is only because the quality of the end changes with the length of the episode. The mother is more depleted and helpless after twenty-four hours than after six, and the vacationer is more refreshed and rested after six days than after three. What truly matters when we intuitively assess such episodes is the progressive deterioration or improvement of the ongoing experience and how the person feels at the end. Amnesiac Vacations Consider the choice of a vacation. Do you prefer to enjoy a relaxing week at the familiar beach to which you went last year? Or do you hope to enrich your store of memories? Distinct industries have developed to cater to these alternatives. Resorts offer restorative relaxation. Tourism is about helping people construct stories and collect memories. The frenetic picture-taking of many tourists suggests that storing memories is often an important goal, which shapes both the plans for the vacation and the experience of it. The photographer does not view the scene as a moment to be savored, but as a future memory to be designed. Pictures may be useful to the remembering self, though we rarely look at them for very long, or as often as we expected, or even at all. But picture-taking is not necessarily the best way for the tourist's experiencing self to enjoy a view. In many cases, we evaluate touristic vacations by the story and the memories that we expect to store. The word memorable is often used to describe vacation highlights, explicitly revealing the goal of the experience. In other situations, love comes to mind, the declaration that the present moment will never be forgotten, though not always accurate, changes the character of the moment. A self-consciously memorable experience gains a weight and a significance that it would not otherwise have. Ed Diener and his team provided evidence that it is the remembering self that chooses vacations. They asked students to maintain daily diaries and a record of a daily evaluation of their experiences during spring break. The students also provided a global rating of the vacation when it had ended. Finally, they indicated whether or not they intended to repeat or not to repeat the vacation they had just had. Statistical analysis established that the intentions for future vacations were entirely determined by the final evaluation, even when that score did not accurately represent the quality of the experience that was described in the diaries. As in the cold hand experiment, right or wrong, people choose by memory when they decide whether or not to repeat an experience. A thought experiment about your next vacation will allow you to observe your attitude to your experiencing self. At the end of the vacation, all pictures and videos will be destroyed. Furthermore, you will swallow a potion that will wipe out all your memories of the vacation. How would this prospect affect your vacation plans? How much would you be willing to pay for it? relative to a normally memorable vacation.
While I have not formally studied the reactions to this scenario, my impressions from discussing it with people is that the elimination of memories greatly reduces the value of the experience. In some cases, people treat themselves as they would treat another amnesiac, choosing to maximize overall pleasure by returning to a place where they have been happy in the past. However, some people say that they would not bother to go at all, revealing that they care only about their remembering self and care less about their amnesiac-experiencing self than about an amnesiac stranger. Many point out that they would not send either themselves or another amnesiac to climb mountains or trek through the jungle because these experiences are mostly painful in real time and gain value from the expectation that both the pain and the joy of reaching the goal will be memorable. For another thought experiment, imagine you face a painful operation during which you will remain conscious. You are told you will scream in pain and beg the surgeon to stop. However, you are promised an amnesiac drug that will completely wipe out any memory of the episode. How do you feel about such a prospect? Here again, my informal observation is that most people are remarkably indifferent to the pains of their experiencing self. Some say they don't care at all. Others share my feeling, which is that I feel pity for my suffering self, but not more than I would feel for a stranger in pain. Odd as it may seem, I am my remembering self, and the experiencing self who does my living is like a stranger to me. Speaking of life as a story He is desperately trying to protect the narrative of his story of a life of integrity, which is endangered by the latest episode. The length to which he was willing to go for a one-night encounter is a sign of total duration neglect. You seem to be devoting your entire vacation to the construction of memories. Perhaps you should put away the camera and enjoy the moment, even if it's not very memorable. She is an Alzheimer's patient. She no longer maintains a narrative of her life, but her experiencing self is still sensitive to beauty and gentleness. Chapter 37 Experienced Well-Being When I became interested in the study of well-being about fifteen years ago, I quickly found out that almost everything that was known about the subject drew on the answers of millions of people to minor variations of a survey question, which was generally accepted as a measure of happiness. The question is clearly addressed to your remembering self, which is invited to think about your life. All things considered, how satisfied are you with your life as a whole these days? Having come to the topic of well-being from the study of the mistaken memories of colonoscopies, and painfully cold hands, I was naturally suspicious of global satisfaction with life as a valid measure of well-being. As the remembering self had not proved to be a good witness in my experiments, I focused on the well-being of the experiencing self. I proposed that it made sense to say that Helen was happy in the month of March if 
She spent most of her time engaged in activities that she would rather continue than stop, little time in situations she wished to escape, and, very important because life is short, not too much time in a neutral state in which she would not care either way. There are many different experiences we would rather continue than stop, including both mental and physical pleasures. One of the examples I had in mind for a situation that Helen would wish to continue is total absorption in a task, which Mihaly Sixcent Mihaly calls flow, a state that some artists experience in their creative moments and that many other people achieve when enthralled by a film, a book, or a crossword puzzle. Interruptions are not welcome in any of these situations. I also had memories of a happy early childhood in which I always cried when my mother came to tear me away from my toys to take me to the park, and cried again when she took me away from the swings and the slide. The resistance to interruption was a sign I had been having a good time, both with my toys and with the swings. I proposed to measure Helen's objective happiness precisely as we assessed the experience of the two colonoscopy patients by evaluating a profile of the well-being she experienced over successive moments of her life. In this, I was following Edgeworth's hedonometer method of a century earlier. In my initial enthusiasm for this approach, I was inclined to dismiss Helen's remembering self as an error-prone witness to the actual well-being of her experiencing self. I suspected this position was too extreme, which it turned out to be, but it was a good start. Experienced Well-Being I assembled a dream team that included three other psychologists of different specialities and one economist and we set out together to develop a measure of the well-being of the experiencing self. A continuous record of experience was unfortunately impossible. A person cannot live normally while constantly reporting her experiences. The closest alternative was experience sampling, a method that Sixcent Mihaly had invented. Technology has advanced since its first uses, Experience sampling is now implemented by programming an individual's cell phone to beep or vibrate at random intervals during the day. The phone then presents a brief menu of questions about what the respondent was doing and who was with her when she was interrupted. The participant is also shown rating scales to report the intensity of various feelings, happiness, tension, anger, worry, engagement, physical pain, and others. Experience sampling is expensive and burdensome, although less disturbing than most people initially expect. Answering the questions takes very little time. A more practical alternative was needed, so we developed a method we called the Day Reconstruction Method, DRM. We hoped it would approximate the results of experience sampling and provide additional information about the way people spend their time. Participants, all women in the early studies, were invited to a two-hour session. We first asked them to relive the previous day in detail, 
breaking it up into episodes like scenes in a film. Later, they answered menus of questions about each episode based on the experience sampling method. They selected activities in which they were engaged from a list and indicated the one to which they paid most attention. They also listed the individuals they had been with and rated the intensity of several feelings on separate zero to six scales. Zero equals the absence of the feeling. Six equals most intense feeling. Our method drew on evidence that people who are able to retrieve a past situation in detail are also able to relive the feelings that accompanied it, even experiencing their earlier physiological indications of emotion. We assumed that our participants would fairly accurately recover the feelings of a prototypical moment of the episode. Several comparisons with experience sampling confirmed the validity of the DRM. Because the participants also reported the times at which episodes began and ended, we were able to compute a duration-weighted measure of their feeling during the entire waking day. Longer episodes counted more than short episodes in our summary measure of daily effect. Our questionnaire also included measures of life satisfaction, which we interpreted as the satisfaction of the remembering self. We used the DRM to study the determinants of both emotional well-being and life satisfaction in several thousand women in the United States, France, and Denmark. The experience of a moment or an episode is not easily represented by a single happiness value. There are many variants of positive feelings, including love, joy, engagement, hope, amusement, and many others. Negative emotions also come in many varieties, including anger, shame, depression, and loneliness. Although positive and negative emotions exist at the same time, it is possible to classify most moments of life as ultimately positive or negative. We could identify unpleasant episodes by comparing the ratings of positive and negative adjectives. We called an episode unpleasant if a negative feeling was assigned to a higher rating than all the positive feelings. We found that American women spent about 19% of the time in an unpleasant state somewhat higher than French women, 16%, or Danish women, 14%. We called the percentage of time that an individual spends in an unpleasant state the U-index. For example, an individual who spent four hours of a 16-hour waking day in an unpleasant state would have a U-index of 25%. The appeal of the U-index is that it is based not on a rating scale, but on an objective measurement of time. If the U-index for a population drops from 20% to 18%, you can infer that the total time that the population spent in emotional discomfort or pain has diminished by a tenth. A striking observation was the extent of inequality in the distribution of emotional pain. About half of our participants reported going through an entire day without experiencing an unpleasant episode. On the other hand, 
a significant minority of the population experienced considerable emotional distress for much of the day. It appears that a small fraction of the population does most of the suffering, whether because of physical or mental illness, an unhappy temperament, or the misfortunes and personal tragedies in their life. A U-index can also be computed for activities. For example, we can measure the proportion of time that people spend in a negative emotional state while commuting, working, or interacting with their parents, spouses, or children. For 1,000 American women in a Midwestern city, the U-index was 29% for the morning commute, 27% for work, 24% for child care, 18% for housework, 12% for socializing, 12% for TV watching, and 5% for sex. The U-index was higher by about 6% on weekdays than it was on weekends, mostly because on weekends people spend less time in activities they dislike and do not suffer the tension and stress associated with work. The biggest surprise was the emotional experience of the time spent with one's children, which for American women was slightly less enjoyable than doing housework. Here we found one of the few contrasts between French and American women. French women spend less time with their children, but enjoy it more, perhaps because they have more access to child care and spend less of the afternoon driving children to various activities. An individual's mood at any moment depends on her temperament and overall happiness, but emotional well-being also fluctuates considerably over the day and the week. The mood of the moment depends primarily on the current situation. Mood at work, for example, is largely unaffected by the factors that influence general job satisfaction, including benefits and status. More important, are situational factors, such as an opportunity to socialize with co-workers, exposure to loud noise, time pressure, a significant source of negative effect, and the immediate presence of a boss. In our first study, the only thing that was worse than being alone. Attention is key. Our emotional state is largely determined by what we attend to, and we are normally focused on our current activity and immediate environment. There are exceptions where the quality of subjective experience is dominated by recurrent thoughts rather than by the events of the moment. When happily in love, we may feel joy even when caught in traffic, and if grieving, we may remain depressed when watching a funny movie. In normal circumstances, however, we draw pleasure and pain from what is happening at the moment if we attend to it. To get pleasure from eating, for example, you must notice that you are doing it. We found that French and American women spent about the same amount of time eating, but for French women, eating was twice as likely to be focal as it was for American women. The Americans were far more prone to combine eating with other activities, and their pleasure from eating was correspondingly diluted. These observations have implications for both individuals and society. 
The use of time is one of the areas of life over which people have some control. Few individuals can will themselves to have a sunnier disposition, but some may be able to arrange their lives to spend less of their day commuting and more time doing things they enjoy with people they like. The feelings associated with different activities suggest that another way to improve experience is to switch time from passive leisure, such as TV watching, to more active forms of leisure, including socializing and exercise. From the social perspective, improved transportation for the labor force, availability of childcare for working women, and improved socializing opportunities for the elderly may be relatively efficient ways to reduce the U-index of society. Even a reduction by 1% would be a significant achievement, amounting to millions of hours of avoided suffering. Combined national surveys of time use and of experienced well-being can inform social policy in multiple ways. The economist on our team, Alan Kruger, took the lead in an effort to introduce elements of this method into national statistics. Measures of experienced well-being are now routinely used in large-scale national surveys in the United States, Canada, and Europe, and the Gallup World Poll has extended these measurements to millions of respondents in the United States and in more than 150 countries. The polls elicit reports of the emotions experienced during the previous day, though in less detail than the DRM. The gigantic samples allow extremely fine analyses, which have confirmed the importance of situational factors, physical health, and social contact in experienced well-being. Not surprisingly, a headache will make a person miserable, and the second-best predictor of the feelings of a day is whether a person did or did not have contacts with friends or relatives. It is only a slight exaggeration to say that happiness is the experience of spending time with people you love and who love you. The Gallup data permit a comparison of two aspects of well-being. The well-being that people experience as they live their lives. The judgment they make when they evaluate their life. Gallup's life evaluation is measured by a question known as the Cantrill Self-Anchoring Striving Scale. Please imagine a ladder with steps numbered from zero at the bottom to ten at the top. The top of the ladder represents the best possible life for you, and the bottom of the ladder represents the worst possible life for you. On which step of the ladder would you say you personally feel you stand at this time? Some aspects of life have more effect on the evaluation of one's life than on the experience of living. Educational attainment is an example. More education is associated with higher evaluation of one's life, but not with greater experienced well-being. Indeed, at least in the United States, the more educated tend to report higher stress. On the other hand, Ill health has a much stronger adverse effect on experienced well-being than on life evaluation. Living with children also imposes a significant cost on the currency of daily feelings. 
Reports of stress and anger are common among parents, but the adverse effects on life evaluation are smaller. Religious participation also has relatively greater favorable impact on both positive affect and stress reduction than on life evaluation. Surprisingly, however, religion provides no reduction of feelings of depression or worry. An analysis of more than 450,000 responses to the Gallup Healthways Wellbeing Index, a daily survey of 1,000 Americans, provides a surprisingly definite answer to the most frequently asked question in well-being research. Can money buy happiness? The conclusion is that being poor makes one miserable, and that being rich may enhance one's life satisfaction, but does not, on average, improve experienced well-being. Severe poverty amplifies the experienced effects of other misfortunes of life. In particular, illness is much worse for the very poor than for those who are more comfortable. A headache increases the proportion reporting sadness and worry from 19% to 38% for individuals in the top two-thirds of the income distribution. The corresponding numbers for the poorest tenth are 38% and 70%. a higher baseline level, and a much larger increase. Significant differences between the very poor and others are also found for the effects of divorce and loneliness. Furthermore, the beneficial effects of the weekend on experienced well-being are significantly smaller for the very poor than for most everyone else. The satiation level beyond which experienced well-being no longer increases was a household income of about $75,000 in high-cost areas. It could be less in areas where the cost of living is lower. The average increase of experienced well-being associated with incomes beyond that level was precisely zero. This is surprising because higher income undoubtedly permits the purchase of many pleasures, including vacations in interesting places and opera tickets, as well as an improved living environment. Why do these added pleasures not show up in reports of emotional experience? A plausible interpretation is that higher income is associated with a reduced ability to enjoy the small pleasures of life. There is suggestive evidence in favor of this idea. Priming students with the idea of wealth reduces the pleasure their face expresses as they eat a bar of chocolate. There is a clear contrast between the effects of income on experienced well-being and on life satisfaction. Higher income brings with it higher satisfaction, well beyond the point at which it ceases to have any positive effect on experience. The general conclusion is as clear for well-being as it was for colonoscopies. People's evaluations of their lives and their actual experience may be related, but they are also different. Life satisfaction is not a flawed measure of their experienced well-being, as I thought some years ago. It is something else entirely. Speaking of Experienced Well-Being 
The objective of policy should be to reduce human suffering. We aim for a lower U-index in society. Dealing with depression and extreme poverty should be a priority. The easiest way to increase happiness is to control your use of time. Can you find more time to do the things you enjoy doing? Beyond the satiation level of income, you can buy more pleasurable experiences, but you will lose some of your ability to enjoy the less expensive ones. Chapter 38 Thinking About Life Figure 16 on the PDF is taken from an analysis by Andrew Clark, Ed Diener, and Janis Georgelis of the German Socio-Economic Panel, in which the same respondents were asked every year about their satisfaction with their life. Respondents also reported major changes that had occurred in their circumstances during the preceding year. The graph shows the level of satisfaction reported by people around the time they got married. The graph reliably evokes nervous laughter from audiences, and the nervousness is easy to understand. After all, people who decide to get married do so either because they expect it will make them happier or because they hope that making a tie permanent will maintain the present state of bliss. In the useful term introduced by Daniel Gilbert and Timothy Wilson, the decision to get married reflects, for many people, a massive error of affective forecasting. On their wedding day, the bride and the groom know that the rate of divorce is high and that the incidence of marital disappointment is even higher, but they do not believe that these statistics apply to them. The startling news of Figure 16 is the steep decline of life satisfaction. The graph is commonly interpreted as tracing a process of adaptation in which the early joys of marriage quickly disappear as the experiences become routine. However, another approach is possible, which focuses on heuristics of judgment. Here we ask what happens in people's minds when they are asked to evaluate their life. The questions, how satisfied are you with your life as a whole, and how happy are you these days, are not as simple as, what is your telephone number? How do survey participants manage to answer the question in a few seconds, as all do? It will help to think of this as another judgment. As is also the case for other questions, some people may have a ready-made answer, which they have produced on another occasion in which they evaluated their life. Others, probably the majority, do not quickly find a response to the exact question they were asked and automatically make their task easier by substituting the answer to another question. System 1 is at work. When we look at figure 16 in this light, it takes on a different meaning. The answers to many simple questions can be substituted for a global evaluation of life. You remember the study in which students who had just been asked how many dates they had in the previous month reported their happiness these days as if dating was the only significant fact in their life. In another well-known experiment in the same vein, Norbert Schwartz and his colleagues 
invited subjects to the lab to complete a questionnaire on life satisfaction. Before they began that task, however, he asked them to photocopy a sheet of paper for him. Half the respondents found a dime on the copying machine, planted there by the experimenter. The minor lucky incident caused a marked improvement in the subject's reported satisfaction with their life as a whole. A mood heuristic is one way to answer life satisfaction questions. The dating survey and the coin-on-the-machine experiment demonstrated, as intended, that the responses to global well-being questions should be taken with a grain of salt. But, of course, your current mood is not the only thing that comes to mind when you are asked to evaluate your life. You are likely to be reminded of significant events in your recent past or near future, of recurrent concerns, such as the health of a spouse or the bad company that your teenager keeps, of important achievements and painful failures. A few ideas that are relevant to the question will occur to you. Many others will not. Even when it is not influenced by completely irrelevant accidents, such as the coin on the machine, the score that you quickly assign to your life is determined by a small sample of highly available ideas, not by a careful weighting of the domains of your life. People who recently married, or are expecting to marry in the near future, are likely to retrieve that fact when asked a general question about their life. Because marriage is almost always voluntary in the United States, almost everyone who is reminded of his or her recent or forthcoming marriage will be happy with the idea. Attention is the key to the puzzle. Figure 16 can be read as a graph of the likelihood that people will think of their recent or forthcoming marriage when asked about their life. The salience of this thought is bound to diminish with the passage of time as its novelty wanes. The figure shows an unusually high level of life satisfaction that lasts two or three years around the event of marriage. However, if this apparent surge reflects the time course of a heuristic for answering the question, there is little we can learn from it about either happiness or about the process of adaptation to marriage. We cannot infer from it that a tide of raised happiness lasts for several years and gradually recedes. Even people who are happy to be reminded of their marriage when asked a question about their life are not necessarily happier the rest of the time. Unless they think happy thoughts about their marriage during most of their day, it will not directly influence their happiness. Even newlyweds who are lucky enough to enjoy a state of happy preoccupation with their love will eventually return to earth, and their experienced well-being will again depend, as it does for the rest of us, on the environment and activities of the present moment. In the DRM studies... There was no overall difference in experienced well-being between women who lived with a mate and women who did not. The details of how the two groups used their time explained the finding. Women who have a mate spend less time alone, but also much less time with friends. They spend more time making love, which is wonderful, but also more time doing housework, preparing food, and caring for children all relatively unpopular activities.
And, of course, the large amount of time married women spend with their husband is much more pleasant for some than for others. Experienced well-being is, on average, unaffected by marriage, not because marriage makes no difference to happiness, but because it changes some aspects of life for the better and others for the worse. One reason for the low correlations between individuals' circumstances and their satisfaction with life is that both experienced happiness and life satisfaction are largely determined by the genetics of temperament. A disposition for well-being is as heritable as height or intelligence, as demonstrated by studies of twins separated at birth. People who appear equally fortunate vary greatly in how happy they are. In some instances, as in the case of marriage, the correlations with well-being are low because of balancing effects. The same situation may be good for some people and bad for others, and new circumstances have both benefits and costs. In other cases, such as high income, the effects on life satisfaction are generally positive, but the picture is complicated by the fact that some people care much more about money than others do. A large-scale study of the impact of higher education, which was conducted for another purpose, revealed striking evidence of the lifelong effects of the goals that young people set for themselves. The relevant data were drawn from questionnaires collected in 1995 to 1997 from approximately 12,000 people who had started their higher education in elite schools in 1976. When they were 17 or 18, the participants had filled out a questionnaire in which they rated the goal of being very well off financially on a four-point scale ranging from not important to essential. The questionnaire they completed 20 years later included measures of their income in 1995, as well as a global measure of life satisfaction. Goals make a large difference. Nineteen years after they stated their financial aspirations, many of the people who wanted a high income had achieved it. Among the 597 physicians and other medical professionals in the sample, for example, each additional point on the money-important scale was associated with an increment of over $14,000 of job income in 1995 dollars. Non-working married women were also likely to have satisfied their financial ambitions. Each point on the scale translated into more than $12,000 of added household income for these women, evidently through the earnings of their spouse. The importance that people attached to income at age 18 also anticipated their satisfaction with their income as adults. We compared life satisfaction in a high-income group, more than $200,000 household income, to a low-to-moderate-income group less than $50,000. The effect of income on life satisfaction was larger for those who had listed being well-off financially as an essential goal, 0.57 points on a five-point scale. The corresponding difference for those who had indicated that money was not important was only 0.12. The people who wanted money and got it 
were significantly more satisfied than average. Those who wanted money and didn't get it were significantly more dissatisfied. The same principle applies to other goals. One recipe for a dissatisfied adulthood is setting goals that are especially difficult to attain. Measured by life satisfaction 20 years later, the least promising goal that a young person could have was becoming accomplished in a performing art. Teenagers' goals influence what happens to them, where they end up, and how satisfied they are. In part because of these findings, I have changed my mind about the definition of well-being. The goals that people set for themselves are so important to what they do and how they feel about it that an exclusive focus on experienced well-being is not tenable. We cannot hold a concept of well-being that ignores what people want. On the other hand, it is also true that a concept of well-being that ignores how people feel as they live and focuses only on how they feel when they think about their life is also untenable. We must accept the complexities of a hybrid view in which the well-being of both selves is considered. The Focusing Illusion We can infer from the speed with which people respond to questions about their life and from the effects of current mood on their responses that they do not engage in a careful examination when they evaluate their life. They must be using heuristics, which are examples of both substitution and what you see is all there is. Although their view of life was influenced by a question about dating or by a coin on the copying machine, the participants in these studies did not forget that there is more to life than dating or feeling lucky. The concept of happiness is not suddenly changed by finding a dime, but System 1 readily substitutes a small part of it for the whole of it. Any aspect of life to which attention is directed will loom large in a global evaluation. This is the essence of the focusing illusion, which can be described in a single sentence. Nothing in life is as important as you think it is when you are thinking about it. The origin of this idea was a family debate about moving from California to Princeton, in which my wife claimed that people are happier in California than on the East Coast. I argue that climate is demonstrably not an important determinant of well-being. The Scandinavian countries are probably the happiest in the world. I observed that permanent life circumstances have little effect on well-being and tried in vain to convince my wife that her intuitions about the happiness of Californians were an error of affective forecasting. A short time later, with this debate still on my mind, I participated in a workshop about the social science of global warming. A colleague made an argument that was based on his view of the well-being of the population of planet Earth in the next century. I argued that it was preposterous to forecast what it would be like to live on a warmer planet when we did not even know what it is like to live in California. Soon after that exchange, my colleague David Schkadi and I were granted research funds to study two questions. Are people who live in California happier than others? And 
What are the popular beliefs about the relative happiness of Californians? We recruited large samples of students at major state universities in California, Ohio, and Michigan. From some of them, we obtained a detailed report of their satisfaction with various aspects of their lives. From others, we obtained a prediction of how someone with your interests and values who lived elsewhere would complete the same questionnaire. As we analyzed the data, it became obvious that I had won the family argument. As expected, the students in the two regions differed greatly in their attitude to their climate. The Californians enjoyed their climate, and the Midwesterners despised theirs. But climate was not an important determinant of well-being. Indeed, there was no difference whatsoever between the life satisfaction of students in California and in the Midwest. We also found that my wife was not alone in her belief that Californians enjoy greater well-being than others. The students in both regions shared the same mistaken view, and we were able to trace their error to an exaggerated belief in the importance of climate. We described the error as focusing illusion. The essence of the focusing illusion is what you see is all there is, giving too much weight to the climate, too little to all the other determinants of well-being. To appreciate how strong this illusion is, take a few seconds to consider the question, How much pleasure do you get from your car? An answer came to your mind immediately. You know how much you like and enjoy your car. Now examine a different question. When do you get pleasure from your car? The answer to this question may surprise you, but it is straightforward. You get pleasure or displeasure from your car when you think about your car, which is probably not very often. Under normal circumstances, you do not spend much time thinking about your car when you are driving it. You think of other things as you drive, and your mood is determined by whatever you think about. Here again, when you tried to rate how much you enjoyed your car, you actually answered a much narrower question. How much pleasure do you get from your car when you think about it? The substitution caused you to ignore the fact that you rarely think about your car, a form of duration neglect. The upshot is a focusing illusion. If you like your car, you are likely to exaggerate the pleasure you derive from it which will mislead you when you think of the virtues of your current vehicle as well as when you contemplate buying a new one. A similar bias distorts judgments of the happiness of Californians. When asked about the happiness of Californians, you probably conjure an image of someone attending to a distinctive aspect of the California experience, such as hiking in the summer or admiring the mild winter weather. The focusing illusion arises because Californians actually spend little time attending to these aspects of their life. Moreover, long-term Californians are unlikely to be reminded of the climate when asked for a global evaluation of their life. If you have been there all your life and do not travel much, living in California is like having ten toes. Nice, but not something one thinks much about. Thoughts of any aspect of life are more likely to be salient if a contrasting alternative is highly available.
People who recently moved to California will respond differently. Consider an enterprising soul who moved from Ohio to seek happiness in a better climate. For a few years following the move, a question about his satisfaction with life will probably remind him of the move and also evoke thoughts of the contrasting climates in the two states. The comparison will surely favor California, and the attention to that aspect of life may distort its true weight and experience. However, the focusing illusion can also bring comfort. Whether or not the individual is actually happier after the move, he will report himself happier because thoughts of the climate will make him believe that he is. The focusing illusion can cause people to be wrong about their present state of well-being, as well as about the happiness of others, and about their own happiness in the future. What proportion of the day do paraplegics spend in a bad mood? This question almost certainly made you think of a paraplegic who is currently thinking about some aspect of his condition. Your guess about a paraplegic's mood is therefore likely to be accurate in the early days after a crippling accident. For some time after the event, accident victims think of little else. But over time, with few exceptions, attention is withdrawn from a new situation as it becomes more familiar. The main exceptions are chronic pain, constant exposure to loud noise, and severe depression. Pain and noise are biologically set to be signals that attract attention, and depression involves a self-reinforcing cycle of miserable thoughts. There is therefore no adaptation to these conditions. Paraplegia, however, is not one of the exceptions. Detailed observations show that paraplegics are in a fairly good mood more than half of the time as early as one month following their accident, though their mood is certainly somber when they think about their situation. Most of the time, however, paraplegics work, read, enjoy jokes and friends, and get angry when they read about politics in the newspaper. When they are involved in any of these activities, they are not much different from anyone else, and we can expect the experienced well-being of paraplegics to be near normal much of the time. Adaptation to a new situation, whether good or bad, consists in large part of thinking less and less about it. In that sense, most long-term circumstances of life, including paraplegia and marriage, are part-time states that one inhabits only when one attends to them. One of the privileges of teaching at Princeton is the opportunity to guide bright undergraduates through a research thesis. And one of my favorite experiences in this vein was a project in which Beruria Khan collected and analyzed data from a survey firm that asked respondents to estimate the proportion of time that paraplegics spend in a bad mood. She split her respondents into two groups. Some were told that the crippling accident had occurred a month earlier, some a year earlier. In addition, each respondent indicated whether he or she knew a paraplegic personally. The two groups agreed closely in their judgment about the recent paraplegics. Those who knew a paraplegic estimated 75% bad mood, 
those who had to imagine a paraplegic said 70%. In contrast, the two groups differed sharply in their estimates of the mood of paraplegics a year after the accidents. Those who knew a paraplegic offered 41% as their estimate of the time in that bad mood. The estimates of those who were not personally acquainted with a paraplegic averaged 68%. Evidently, those who knew a paraplegic had observed the gradual withdrawal of attention from the condition, but others did not forecast that this adaptation would occur. Judgments about the mood of lottery winners one month and one year after the event showed exactly the same pattern. We can expect the life satisfaction of paraplegics and those afflicted by other chronic and burdensome conditions to be low relative to their experienced well-being, because the request to evaluate their lives will inevitably remind them of the life of others and of the life they used to lead. Consistent with this idea, recent studies of colostomy patients have produced dramatic inconsistencies between the patient's experienced well-being and their evaluation of their lives. Experience sampling shows no difference in experienced happiness between these patients and a healthy population. Yet colostomy patients would be willing to trade away years of their life for a shorter life without the colostomy. Furthermore, patients whose colostomy has been reversed remember their time in this condition as awful, and they would give up even more of their remaining life not to have to return to it. Here, it appears that the remembering self is subject to a massive focusing illusion about the life that the experiencing self endures quite comfortably. Daniel Gilbert and Timothy Wilson introduced the word miswanting to describe bad choices that arise from errors of affective forecasting. This word deserves to be in everyday language. The focusing illusion, which Gilbert and Wilson call focalism, is a rich source of miswanting. In particular, it makes us prone to exaggerate the effect of significant purchases or changed circumstances on our future well-being. Compare two commitments that will change some aspects of your life. Buying a comfortable new car and joining a group that meets weekly, perhaps a poker or book club. Both experiences will be novel and exciting at the start. The crucial difference is that you will eventually pay little attention to the car as you drive it, but you will always attend to the social interaction to which you committed yourself. By what you see is all there is, you are likely to exaggerate the long-term benefits of the car, but you are not likely to make the same mistake for a social gathering or for inherently attention-demanding activities, such as playing tennis or learning to play the cello. The focusing illusion creates a bias in favor of goods and experiences that are initially exciting, even if they will eventually lose their appeal. Time is neglected, causing experiences that will retain their attention value in the long term to be appreciated less than they deserve to be. Time and Time Again The role of time has been a refrain in this part of the book. 
It is logical to describe the life of the experiencing self as a series of moments, each with a value. The value of an episode, I have called it a hedonometer total, is simply the sum of the values of its moments. But this is not how the mind represents episodes. The remembering self, as I have described it, also tells stories and makes choices, and neither the stories nor the choices properly represent time. In storytelling mode, an episode is represented by a few critical moments, especially the beginning, the peak, and the end. Duration is neglected. We saw this focus on singular moments, both in the cold hand situation and in Violetta's story. We saw a different form of duration neglect in prospect theory, in which a state is represented by the transition to it. Winning a lottery yields a new state of wealth that will endure for some time. But decision utility corresponds to the anticipated intensity of the reaction to the news that one has won. The withdrawal of attention and other adaptations to the new state are neglected as only that thin slice of time is considered. The same focus on the transition to the new state and the same neglect of time and adaptation are found in forecasts of the reaction to chronic diseases and, of course, in the focusing illusion. The mistake that people make in the focusing illusion involves attention to selected moments and neglect of what happens at other times. The mind is good with stories, but it does not appear to be well designed for the processing of time. During the last ten years, we have learned many new facts about happiness. But we have also learned that the word happiness does not have a simple meaning and should not be used as if it does. Sometimes scientific progress leaves us more puzzled than we were before. Speaking of thinking about life. She thought that buying a fancy car would make her happier, but it turned out to be an error of affective forecasting. His car broke down on the way to work this morning, and he's in a foul mood. This is not a good day to ask him about his job satisfaction. She looks quite cheerful most of the time. The question must make her think of her recent divorce. Buying a larger house may not make us happier in the long term. We could be suffering from a focusing illusion. He has chosen to split his time between two cities, probably a serious case of miswanting. Conclusions I began this book by introducing two fictitious characters, spent some time discussing two species, and ended with two selves. The two characters were the intuitive system one, which does the fast thinking, and the effortful and slower system two, which does the slow thinking, monitors system one, and maintains control as best it can within its limited resources. The two species were the fictitious econs, who live in the land of theory, and the humans, who act in the real world. The two selves are the experiencing self, which does the living, and the remembering self, which keeps score and makes the choices. 
In this final chapter, I consider some applications of the three distinctions, taking them in reverse order. Two Selves The possibility of conflicts between the remembering self and the interests of the experiencing self turned out to be a harder problem than I initially thought. In an early experiment, the cold hand study, the combination of duration neglect and the peak-end rule led to choices that were manifestly absurd. Why would people willingly expose themselves to unnecessary pain? Our subjects left the choice to their remembering self, preferring to repeat the trial that left the better memory, although it involved more pain. Choosing by the quality of the memory may be justified in extreme cases, such as where post-traumatic stress is a possibility, but the cold hand experience was not traumatic. An objective observer making the choice for someone else would undoubtedly choose the short exposure favoring the sufferer's experiencing self. The choices that people made on their own behalf are fairly described as mistakes. Duration neglect and the peak-end rule in the evaluation of stories both at the opera and in judgments of Jen's life, are equally indefensible. It does not make sense to evaluate an entire life by its last moments, or to give no weight to duration in deciding which life is more desirable. The remembering self is a construction of System 2. However, the distinctive features of the way it evaluates episodes and lives are characteristics of our memory. Duration neglect and the peak-end rule originate in System 1 and do not necessarily correspond to the values of System 2. We believe that duration is important, but our memory tells us it is not. The rules that govern the evaluation of the past are poor guides for decision-making because time does matter. The central fact of our existence is that time is the ultimate finite resource, but the remembering self ignores that reality. The neglect of duration, combined with the peak-end rule, causes a bias that favors a short period of intense joy over a long period of moderate happiness. The mirror image of the same bias makes us fear a short period of intense but tolerable suffering more than we fear a much longer period of moderate pain. Duration neglect also makes us prone to accept a long period of mild unpleasantness because the end will be better, and it favors giving up an opportunity for a long happy period if it is likely to have a poor ending. To drive the same idea to the point of discomfort, consider the common admonition, Don't do it. You will regret it. The advice sounds wise because anticipated regret is the verdict of the remembering self and we are inclined to accept such judgments as final and conclusive. We should not forget, however, that the perspective of the remembering self is not always correct. An objective observer of the hedonometer profile with the interests of the experiencing self in mind might well offer different advice. The remembering self's neglect of duration, its exaggerated emphasis on peaks and ends, 
and its susceptibility to hindsight combine to yield distorted reflections of our actual experience. In contrast, the duration-weighted conception of well-being treats all moments of life alike, memorable or not. Some moments end up weighted more than others, either because they are memorable or because they are important. The time that people spend dwelling on a memorable moment should be included in its duration, adding to its weight. A moment can also gain importance by altering the experience of subsequent moments. For example, an hour spent practicing the violin may enhance the experience of many hours of playing or listening to music years later. Similarly, a brief awful event that causes PTSD should be weighted by the total duration of the long-term misery it causes. In the duration-weighted perspective, we can determine only after the fact that a moment is memorable or meaningful. The statements, I will always remember, or this is a meaningful moment, should be taken as promises or predictions, which can be false, and often are, even when uttered with complete sincerity. It is a good bet that many of the things we say we will always remember will be long forgotten ten years later. The logic of duration waiting is compelling, but it cannot be considered a complete theory of well-being because individuals identify with their remembering self and care about their story. A theory of well-being that ignores what people want cannot be sustained. On the other hand, a theory that ignores what actually happens in people's lives and focuses exclusively on what they think about their life is not tenable either. The remembering self and the experiencing self must both be considered, because their interests do not always coincide. Philosophers could struggle with these questions for a long time. The issue of which of the two selves matters more is not a question only for philosophers. It has implications for policies in several domains, notably medicine and welfare. Consider the investment that should be made in the treatment of various medical conditions, including blindness, deafness, or kidney failure. Should the investments be determined by how much people fear these conditions? Should investments be guided by the suffering that patients actually experience? Or should they follow the intensity of the patient's desire to be relieved from their condition and by the sacrifices that they would be willing to make to achieve that relief? The ranking of blindness and deafness or of colostomy and dialysis might well be different depending on which measure of the severity of suffering is used. No easy solution is in sight, but the issue is too important to be ignored. The possibility of using measures of well-being as indicators to guide government policies has attracted considerable recent interest, both among academics and in several governments in Europe. It is now conceivable, as it was not even a few years ago, that an index of the amount of suffering in society will someday be included in national statistics, along with measures of unemployment, physical disability, and income. This project has come a long way.
Econs and Humans In everyday speech, we call people reasonable if it is possible to reason with them, if their beliefs are generally in tune with reality, and if their preferences are in line with their interests and their values. The word rational conveys an image of greater deliberation, more calculation, and less warmth. But in common language, a rational person is certainly reasonable. For economists and decision theorists, the adjective has an altogether different meaning. The only test of rationality is not whether a person's beliefs and preferences are reasonable, but whether they are internally consistent. A rational person can believe in ghosts so long as all her other beliefs are consistent with the existence of ghosts. A rational person can prefer being hated over being loved so long as his preferences are consistent. Rationality is logical coherence, reasonable or not. Econs are rational by this definition, but there is overwhelming evidence that humans cannot be. An econ would not be susceptible to priming. What you see is all there is. Narrow framing, the inside view, or preference reversals, which humans cannot consistently avoid. The definition of rationality as coherence is impossibly restrictive. It demands adherence to rules of logic that a finite mind is not able to implement. Reasonable people cannot be rational by that definition, but they should not be branded as irrational for that reason. Irrational is a strong word which connotes impulsivity, emotionality, and a stubborn resistance to reasonable argument. I often cringe when my work with Amos is credited with demonstrating that human choices are irrational, when in fact our research only showed that humans are not well described by the rational agent model. Although humans are not irrational, they often need help to make more accurate judgments and better decisions, and in some cases, policies and institutions can provide that help. These claims may seem innocuous, but they are in fact quite controversial. As interpreted by the important Chicago School of Economics, faith in human rationality is closely linked to an ideology in which it is unnecessary and even immoral to protect people against their choices. Rational people should be free, and they should be responsible for taking care of themselves. Milton Friedman, the leading figure in that school, expressed this view in the title of one of his popular books, Free to Choose. The assumption that agents are rational provides the intellectual foundation for the libertarian approach to public policy. Do not interfere with the individual's right to choose, unless the choices harm others. Libertarian policies are further bolstered by admiration for the efficiency of markets in allocating goods to the people who are willing to pay the most for them. A famous article in that vein has the self-explanatory title, A Theory of Rational Addiction. It explains how a rational agent with a strong preference for intense and immediate gratification may make the rational decision to accept future addiction as a consequence. 
I once heard Gary Becker, one of the authors of that article, who is also a Nobel laureate of the Chicago School, argue in a lighter vein, but not entirely as a joke, that we should consider the possibility of explaining the so-called obesity epidemic by people's belief that a cure for diabetes will soon become available. He was making a valuable point. When we observe people acting in ways that seem odd, we should first examine the possibility that they have a good reason to do what they do. Psychological interpretations should only be invoked when the reasons become implausible, which Becker's explanation of obesity probably is. In a nation of econs, government should keep out of the way, allowing the econs to act as they choose, so long as they do not harm others. If a motorcycle rider chooses to ride without a helmet, a libertarian will support his right to do so. Citizens know what they are doing, even when they choose not to save for their old age, or when they expose themselves to addictive substances. There is sometimes a hard edge to this position. Elderly people who did not save enough for retirement get little more sympathy than someone who complains about the bill after consuming a large meal at a restaurant. Much is, therefore, at stake in the debate between the Chicago School and the behavioral economists who reject the extreme form of the rational agent model. Freedom is not a contested value. All the participants in the debate are in favor of it. But life is more complex for behavioral economists than for true believers in human rationality. No behavioral economist favors a state that will force its citizens to eat a balanced diet and to watch only television programs that are good for the soul. For behavioral economists, however, freedom has a cost, which is borne by individuals who make bad choices, and by a society that feels obligated to help them. The decision of whether or not to protect individuals against their mistakes therefore presents a dilemma for behavioral economists. The economists of the Chicago School do not face that problem because rational agents do not make mistakes. For adherents of this school, freedom is free of charge. In 2008, the economist Richard Thaler and the jurist Cass Sunstein teamed up to write a book, Nudge, which quickly became an international bestseller and the Bible of behavioral economics. Their book introduced several new words into the language, including econs and humans. It also presented a set of solutions to the dilemma of how to help people make good decisions without curtailing their freedom. Thaler and Sunstein advocate a position of libertarian paternalism, in which the state and other institutions are allowed to nudge people to make decisions that serve their own long-term interests. The designation of joining a pension plan as the default option is an example of a nudge. It is difficult to argue that anyone's freedom is diminished by being automatically enrolled in the plan when they merely have to check a box to opt out. As we saw earlier, the framing of the individual's decision, Thaler and Sunstein call it choice architecture, has a huge effect on the outcome. The nudge is based on sound psychology, which I described earlier. 
the default option is naturally perceived as the normal choice. Deviating from the normal choice is an act of commission, which requires more effortful deliberation, takes on more responsibility, and is more likely to evoke regret than doing nothing. These are powerful forces that may guide the decision of someone who is otherwise unsure of what to do. Humans, more than econs, also need protection from others who deliberately exploit their weaknesses, and especially the quirks of System 1 and the laziness of System 2. Rational agents are assumed to make important decisions carefully and to use all the information that is provided to them. An econ will read and understand the fine print of a contract before signing it, but humans usually do not. An unscrupulous firm that designs contracts that customers will routinely sign without reading has considerable legal leeway in hiding important information in plain sight. A pernicious implication of the rational agent model in its extreme form is that customers are assumed to need no protection beyond ensuring that the relevant information is disclosed. The size of the print and the complexity of the language in the disclosure are not considered relevant. An econ knows how to deal with small print when it matters. In contrast, the recommendations of Nudge require firms to offer contracts that are sufficiently simple to be read and understood by human customers. It is a good sign that some of these recommendations have encountered significant opposition from firms whose profits might suffer if their customers were better informed. A world in which firms compete by offering better products is preferable to one in which the winner is the firm that is the best at obfuscation. A remarkable feature of libertarian paternalism is its appeal across a broad political spectrum. The flagship example of behavioral policy, called Save More Tomorrow, was sponsored by Congress by an unusual coalition that included extreme conservatives as well as liberals. Save More Tomorrow is a financial plan that firms can offer to their employees. Those who sign on allow the employer to increase their contribution to their saving plan by a fixed proportion whenever they receive a raise. The increased saving rate is implemented automatically until the employee gives notice that she wants to opt out of it. This brilliant innovation, proposed by Richard Thaler and Shlomo Benarzi in 2003, has now improved the savings rate and brightened the future prospects of millions of workers. It is soundly based in the psychological principles that readers of this book will recognize. It avoids the resistance to an immediate loss by requiring no immediate change. By tying increased savings to pay raises, it turns losses into foregone gains, which are much easier to bear, and the feature of automaticity aligns the laziness of System 2 with the long-term interests of the workers. All this, of course, without compelling anyone to do anything he does not wish to do, and without any misdirection or artifice. The appeal of libertarian paternalism has been recognized in many countries, including the UK and South Korea, 
and by politicians of many stripes, including Tories and the Democratic administration of President Obama. Indeed, Britain's government has created a new small unit whose mission is to apply the principles of behavioral science to help the government better accomplish its goals. The official name for this group is the Behavioral Insight Team, but it is known both in and out of government simply as the Nudge Unit. Thaler is an advisor to this team. In a storybook sequel to the writing of Nudge, Sunstein was invited by President Obama to serve as Administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, a position that gave him considerable opportunity to encourage the application of the lessons of psychology and behavioral economics in government agencies. The mission is described in the 2010 report of the Office of Management and Budget. Readers of this book will appreciate the logic behind specific recommendations, including encouraging clear, simple, salient, and meaningful disclosures. They will also recognize background statements such as presentation greatly matters if, for example, a potential outcome is framed as a loss, it may have more impact than if it is presented as a gain. The example of a regulation about the framing of disclosures concerning fuel consumption was mentioned earlier. Additional applications that have been implemented include automatic enrollment in health insurance, a new version of the dietary guidelines that replaces the incomprehensible food pyramid with the powerful image of a food plate loaded with a balanced diet and a rule formulated by the USDA that permits the inclusion of messages such as 90% fat-free on the label of meat products, provided that the statement 10% fat is also displayed contiguous to, in lettering of the same color, size, and type as, and on the same color background as, the statement of lean percentage. Humans, unlike econs, need help to make good decisions and there are informed and unintrusive ways to provide that help. Two Systems This book has described the workings of the mind as an uneasy interaction between two fictitious characters, the Automatic System 1 and the Effortful System 2. You are now quite familiar with the personalities of the two systems, and able to anticipate how they might respond in different situations. And, of course, you also remember that the two systems do not really exist in the brain or anywhere else. System 1 does X is a shortcut for X occurs automatically, and System 2 is mobilized to do Y is a shortcut for arousal increases, pupils dilate, attention is focused, and activity Y is performed. I hope you find the language of systems as helpful as I do, and that you have acquired an intuitive sense of how they work without getting confused by the question of whether they exist. Having delivered this necessary warning, I will continue to use the language to the end. The attentive System 2 is who we think we are. System 2 articulates judgments and makes choices, 
but it often endorses or rationalizes ideas and feelings that were generated by System 1. You may not know that you are optimistic about a project because something about its leader reminds you of your beloved sister, or that you dislike a person who looks vaguely like your dentist. If asked for an explanation, however, you will search your memory for presentable reasons and will certainly find some. Moreover, you will believe the story you make up. But System 2 is not merely an apologist for System 1. It also prevents many foolish thoughts and inappropriate impulses from overt expression. The investment of attention improves performance in numerous activities. Think of the risks of driving through a narrow space while your mind is wandering and is essential to some tasks, including comparison, choice, and ordered reasoning. However, System 2 is not a paragon of rationality. Its abilities are limited, and so is the knowledge to which it has access. We do not always think straight when we reason, and the errors are not always due to intrusive and incorrect intuitions. Often we make mistakes because we, our system too, do not know any better. I have spent more time describing System 1 and have devoted many pages to errors of intuitive judgment and choice that I attribute to it. However, the relative number of pages is a poor indicator of the balance between the marvels and the flaws of intuitive thinking. System 1 is indeed the origin of much that we do wrong, but it is also the origin of most of what we do right, which is most of what we do. Our thoughts and actions are routinely guided by System 1 and generally are on the mark. One of the marvels is the rich and detailed model of our world that is maintained in associative memory. It distinguishes surprising from normal events in a fraction of a second, immediately generates an idea of what was expected instead of a surprise, and automatically searches for some causal interpretation of surprises and of events as they take place. Memory also holds the vast repertory of skills we have acquired in a lifetime of practice, which automatically produce adequate solutions to challenges as they arise, from walking around a large stone on the path to averting the incipient outburst of a customer. The acquisition of skills requires a regular environment, an adequate opportunity to practice, and rapid and unequivocal feedback about the correctness of thoughts and actions. When these conditions are fulfilled, skill eventually develops, and the intuitive judgments and choices that quickly come to mind will mostly be accurate. All this is the work of System 1, which means it occurs automatically and fast. A marker of skilled performance is the ability to deal with vast amounts of information swiftly and efficiently. When a challenge is encountered to which a skilled response is available, that response is evoked. What happens in the absence of skill? Sometimes, as in the problem 17 times 24 equals, which calls for a specific answer, it is immediately apparent that System 2 must be called in. 
but it is rare that System 1 is dumbfounded. System 1 is not constrained by capacity limits and is profligate in its computations. When engaged in searching for an answer to one question, it simultaneously generates the answers to related questions, and it may substitute a response that more easily comes to mind for the one that was requested. In this conception of heuristics, the heuristic answer is not necessarily simpler or more frugal than the original question. It is only more accessible, computed more quickly and easily. The heuristic answers are not random, and they are often approximately correct, and sometimes they are quite wrong. System 1 registers the cognitive ease with which it processes information, but it does not generate a warning signal when it becomes unreliable. Intuitive answers come to mind quickly and confidently, whether they originate from skills or from heuristics. There is no simple way for System 2 to distinguish between a skilled and a heuristic response. Its only recourse is to slow down and attempt to construct an answer on its own, which it is reluctant to do because it is indolent. Many suggestions of System 1 are casually endorsed with minimal checking, as in the bat and ball problem. This is how System 1 acquires its bad reputation as the source of errors and biases. Its operative features, which include what you see is all there is, intensity matching, and associative coherence, among others, give rise to predictable biases and to cognitive illusions such as anchoring, non-regressive predictions, overconfidence, and numerous others. What can be done about biases? How can we improve judgments and decisions, both our own and those of the institutions that we serve and that serve us? The short answer is that little can be achieved without a considerable investment of effort. As I know from experience, System 1 is not readily educable. Except for some effects that I attribute mostly to age, my intuitive thinking is just as prone to overconfidence, extreme predictions, and the planning fallacy as it was before I made a study of these issues. I have improved only in my ability to recognize situations in which errors are likely. This number will be an anchor. The decision could change if the problem is reframed. And I have made much more progress in recognizing the errors of others than my own. The way to block errors that originate in System 1 is simple in principle. Recognize the signs that you are in a cognitive minefield, slow down, and ask for reinforcement from System 2. This is how you will proceed when you next encounter the Muller-Lyer illusion. When you see lines with fins pointing in different directions, you will recognize the situation as one in which you should not trust your impressions of length. Unfortunately, this sensible procedure is least likely to be applied when it is needed most. We would all like to have a warning bell that rings loudly whenever we are about to make a serious error, but no such bell is available, and cognitive illusions 
are generally more difficult to recognize than perceptual illusions. The voice of reason may be much fainter than the loud and clear voice of an erroneous intuition, and questioning your intuitions is unpleasant when you face the stress of a big decision. More doubt is the last thing you want when you are in trouble. The upshot is that it is much easier to identify a minefield when you observe others wandering into it than when you are about to do so. Observers are less cognitively busy and more open to information than actors. That was my reason for writing a book that is oriented to critics and gossipers rather than to decision-makers. Organizations are better than individuals when it comes to avoiding errors because they naturally think more slowly and have the power to impose orderly procedures. Organizations can institute and enforce the application of useful checklists, as well as more elaborate exercises, such as reference class forecasting and the pre-mortem. At least in part, by providing a distinctive vocabulary, organizations can also encourage a culture in which people watch out for one another as they approach minefields. Whatever else it produces, an organization is a factory that manufactures judgments and decisions. Every factory must have ways to ensure the quality of its products in the initial design, in fabrication, and in final inspections. The corresponding stages in the production of decisions are the framing of the problem that is to be solved, the collection of relevant information leading to a decision, and reflection and review. An organization that seeks to improve its decision product should routinely look for efficiency improvements at each of these stages. The operative concept is routine. Constant quality control is an alternative to the wholesale reviews of processes that organizations commonly undertake in the wake of disasters. There is much to be done to improve decision-making. One example out of many is the remarkable absence of systematic training for the essential skill of conducting efficient meetings. Ultimately, a richer language is essential to the skill of constructive criticism. Much like medicine, the identification of judgment errors is a diagnostic task which requires a precise vocabulary. The name of a disease is a hook to which all that is known about the disease is attached, including vulnerabilities, environmental factors, symptoms, prognosis, and care. Similarly, labels such as anchoring effects, narrow framing, or excessive coherence bring together in memory everything we know about a bias, its causes, its effects, and what can be done about it. There is a direct link from more precise gossip at the water cooler to better decisions. Decision makers are sometimes better able to hear the voices of present gossipers and future critics than the hesitant voice of their own doubts. They will make better choices when they trust their critics to be sophisticated and fair 
and when they expect their decision to be judged by how it was made, not only by how it turned out.